Well, welcome to you all this evening. It's very special to be together, especially today. My name's Ness Hughes, and I'm also part of the ministry team, and I'd love to add my welcome to that of Kath's. We're continuing in our series of John. After slowly exploring chapter one, we turn now to chapter two. But before we start, I made a promise to you standing up the front here a few months ago that every time I come up here, that I would take the opportunity to remind you that I have recently been on a trip to Israel. (laughs) Much to the entertainment of the team, I like to tell as many people as often as I can that I have recently been to Israel, with some people here also from St Andrews. And as it happens, I have some pictures of Jerusalem and the temple today. (laughs) It's a slideshow that will help us (laughs) as we go. So... Genuinely, it's a slideshow. This is a picture of the Temple Mount. We're standing on the Mount of Olives at sunrise. And as we stood there, we had uh, a lecture from John, uh, really thinking through those uh, days where Jesus entered the southern gates the week of his death. And as you can see there, um, it is a beautiful sight. It was, it was very special to be there. This was the second temple, really. Uh, The first one had been destroyed uh, centuries beforehand. So this is the second temple, built by Herod the Great. Um, Although it was also destroyed in AD 17, you can see there along the western wall um, some of the remnants of that temple. This is the only remaining part that the Jewish people today still have access to. This is another part of the western wall known as the Wailing Wall. And as we stood there, um, I was moved really by the devotion of the Jewish people that come there daily to pray. They wash their hands, purifying themselves as best they are able without the temple system, and they approach the wall to pray. They pray with a longing for the temple to be rebuilt, for the glory of the Lord to return to Jerusalem so that he would be present with them once more. Here is a section of the prayer that they recite called the Amada. Return in mercy to Jerusalem, your city, and dwell in it as you have promised. Restore the service to the inner sanctuary of your temple and receive in love and with favour both the fire offerings of Israel and their prayers. Blessed are you, O Lord, who restores his divine presence to Zion. Actually, it's really this context that John too is written because John is written in AD 90 after the temple was destroyed in AD 70 and many religious leaders still saw the temple as their cultic centre of their worship. But of course, once it was destroyed, they'd lost their focal point. And so it's in this context that much discussion continued about where their spiritual focus could be found. And so with that, we return to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we find two stories, probably pretty familiar to you. Jesus at the wedding in Cana turns water into wine. And then in Jerusalem, he's angered by the trade of sacrificial animals and money changers and clears out the temple courts. What's really interesting about these two stories is that the first isn't recorded in any of the other Gospels. And the second, while recorded in all four, It's mentioned much later in Jesus' public ministry and the others. 
Mark, Matthew, Mark and Luke record this narrative after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the week of Jesus' crucifixion. John is retelling the same event, but is chosen to place it at the beginning of his gospel. In other words, he's purposefully arranged his gospel to record the beginning of Jesus' public ministry with these two stories. While I've often reflected on them both individually, I haven't seen them as a whole before. But John has deliberately written his gospel this way and we're supposed to notice what they say together. It's not surprising that John has constructed his gospel with an agenda because he says as much in chapter 20 where he explicitly tells us his purpose. John 20:31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have, it, have life in his name. The stories that John has chosen to record and the way he's chosen to arrange them bring us to or build our faith in Jesus, the one anointed to deliver God's people, God's Son, sent by the Father to bring the world salvation. And that by believing in him, we would have life, eternal life, included in divine fellowship in the presence of God. We're to read these two stories today knowing that John has a theological agenda. It's still biographical and historical, but in the Gospel of John, story and theological interpretation are intertwined. That is, we are to read these narratives of actual events, but be stirred to wonder, who is Jesus and what does he reveal to us about God? Chapter 1, in the prologue, we're given the theological basis for the whole book, the theological key. Jesus is the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came full of grace and truth. And when we see him and his glory, we see the Father, God unveiled. And it's with this in mind that we arrive at Cana, and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So cast your eyes to chapter 2, 1 to 12. Jesus, his mother and the disciples are attending a wedding in Cana, Galilee. Weddings were a week-long affair and part of the way through the festivities, they've run out of wine. Let me read from verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, "'They have no more wine.' Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always felt fairly um, confronted by the way that Jesus addresses his mother when he calls him woman. But it's not meant to be read as rude or hostile, although he is creating distance between them and playing down their familial relationship. Why does he do this? He's really announcing a disengagement from her agenda or the agenda of the world and a full disclosure of his commitment to the Father's mission. From the outset of Jesus' public ministry, we are to see everything that he does and says as a revelation of God. And so what is his Father's mission? Its climax is at the appointed time when his hour has come. 
The full glorification of Jesus is in his death, resurrection and ascension. So the sign that we're about to see and all the signs that follow all point toward this event, preparing us to recognise that moment. While addressing the wine shortage was not the father's mission, he does now act supernaturally to supply new wine. I'll pick up from verse 6. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. The key to understanding the sign are the jars. When they're filled with water, they were used for ceremonial cleaning as part of the Jewish purification, ritual cleansing of hands before a meal. This represents to us the old system of religion. But the old forms are given new content. It's not a rejection of the old, but something new in its place. New wine in old vessels. Jesus has come to bring in a new order, and this new order will bring abundance and extravagance. Because it's not just a top-up of wine, but it's good wine and filled to the brim. Jesus, the true bridegroom, the supplier of the wine. It's symbolic of the eternal hope found in Jesus only, the joy that he brings in eternal life. Verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The first sign is a visible indicator of Jesus' authority and through it his glory is revealed. Notice that John refers to these as signs, not miracles. They're much more significant than a miracle because it's it's not just a display of power but something that points towards that which is to come. Jesus' life and ministry continually reveals God's glory but ultimately so in his death, resurrection and ascension. If the first story announces that Jesus' public ministry is to reveal the glory of God, then the second story gives us a demonstration of how to be in the presence of God. So let's turn our focus to the next part of chapter 2, starting at 13. Jesus has come to Jerusalem for Passover, and as he enters the temple courts, he's confronted by a chaotic scene. Temporary markets have been set up so that travellers are able to purchase animals for sacrifice and exchange their money to pay their temple taxes. I'll read from verse 14. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said... Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. This isn't a story about Jesus' humanity, a moment of his humanness, a moment of human anger. 
But instead, we see two reasons for Jesus rejecting their worship. The first is that they've taken up space in the courts for the Gentiles, the only space on the Temple Mount that was available to them, where they could come and pray and they could watch the Israelites commune with God. Their relationship had become self-serving and neglected its original mission to bring a blessing to the world. Their religion had become something to serve themselves and not to bless the world. And secondly, we see in verse 16 a specific address to those who sold doves. People coming to the temple who couldn't afford a lamb for sacrifice instead brought a dove so that they were still able to make an offering. The tradesmen here had been profiting from exploiting the poor. These are the detestable practices, a term we heard in the Old Testament reading from Ezekiel, that indicate worship that had defiled the temple. In fact, if we just depart from John for a moment and look to Ezekiel, we see in our Old Testament reading an incredible vision for the future. Ezekiel and God's people had been exiled to Babylon. The city of Jerusalem had been captured and plundered. Jerusalem and the Lord's temple, the first temple that is, lay in ruins. The implication of which was God no longer dwelling with his people, an act of divine desertion and judgment. The question in the heart of his people must have been, when and where will we again see the glory of the Lord? Just like after the destruction of the second temple, they had lost their religious focal point. It was into this context that Ezekiel was given a vision, a vision of restoration and return of God's glory to his temple. At the heart of this vision for the future was a promise from God to dwell with his people forever. We read in chapter 37, verse 27 to 28 in Ezekiel, My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. And then in chapter 43, verse 5, The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And it continues, I will live among them forever. It is a glorious future. But it was a vision of the new temple that wasn't meant to direct their thoughts to a new sacred object or to take them um, to a physical place, but beyond the physical temple to their restored relationship with God. It served as a preparation for the way in which God himself would come, a time where he himself would take up residence with his people so they could come to him at any time. What Ezekiel gets as a vision, John records as the fulfilment of in Jesus. Jesus, God's dwelling place on earth. He literally tabernacled among us and with it offers unique and unprecedented access to God. And so as Jesus clears the temple, he gives us a prophetic sign signifying the coming destruction of the temple itself and the end of all that, stood, all that it stood for in contemporary Jewish theology and politics. It was a symbol portraying the coming end of the temple regime. Jesus is revealing his own identity as the messianic embodiment of the temple. His zeal for pure worship would indeed consume him. 
His mission to do away with the old, corrupt system of worship would indeed consume his life. Looking on with concern over this event were the temple authorities. And in verse 18, they ask for a sign that Jesus has the authority to mess with these temple practices. And then he responds. We'll read from verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus is the temple and the embodiment of the full authority of God. We read that in chapter 1, that the word became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. This temple, his body, would be destroyed on the cross. This was the once for all sacrifice for the atonement of sins. What the temple system was designed to mediate, presence with a holy God, Jesus would perfectly accomplish, and not just for Israel, but for all nations. Particularly potent, given that within a generation of Jesus saying this, the temple was indeed destroyed a mere seven years after its completion. But the temple wasn't to be rebuilt. Jesus, however, would be raised resurrected in three days. And in his resurrection, the promise from God to live among his people forever is fulfilled. The passage invites us to have a post-resurrection understanding of the story, ensuring that as we read it, we know that this is a sign, pointing us to his death, resurrection and ascension. This is the new order that replaces the old. Having placed these stories at the beginning of the gospel, the reader is invited to see Jesus as the Messiah. He is the focal point of our worship. He reveals the glory of the Father. And in him, we have presence with God. John's message, Jesus himself, is radical and it changes everything. The Jewish religion in Jesus' day had become detestable to God. They devoted themselves to the system and lost sight of their precious and unique relationship with God. I don't think we're immune from this ourselves. Isn't it possible that our practices replace our true purpose to enjoy a restored relationship with God? That only through Jesus... We can be in his presence. This is a really good day to pause and to recognise the Messiah. Christian believers enjoy access to the presence of God in Jesus and we take, who has taken, sorry, the full theological and spiritual significance of all the temple and the system had held for Israel and he opens it up to the nations. Therefore, we no longer have a territorial centre, no physical land or place that is the focus of our faith or our worship. Our focal point is Jesus, God given flesh, revealed in perfect glory. And as much as I loved being at the temple in Jerusalem, it's not our spiritual centre. 
And though I was incredibly moved by the piety of the Orthodox Jews praying at the Western Wall, I really respectfully longed for them to know Jesus, the fulfilment and the answer to their prayers, to enjoy the joy and intimacy of being in the presence of God now and in eternity. So as I stood at the crowded Western Wall, a space opened up and gave, the, gave me the opportunity to put my hand on the wall and pray. And to be honest, I wasn't sure that I should. And if I did, I wasn't sure what to say. But I did put my hand on the wall, and I'll close with what I prayed. Thank you, God, that the presence I experience with you now, I can feel and enjoy and know as much in my church at Roseville in my home in Wurunga, as I can here in Jerusalem. As the world searches for truth, might all religion and religious pursuits find their place of worship in Jesus, so that all of humanity would know a joyful, eternal future in your glorious presence. Amen.